Hey, this is Steve Balton. Welcome to My Turning Point. Today's guest is the great Wayne Coyne from The Flaming Lips, who shares an amazing story that in all the times I've interviewed him have never heard about being robbed at gunpoint while working at a Long John Silver's and how that led him to The Flaming Lips. If you ever wondered how Wayne Coyne got to the point of walking across crowds in plastic balls, it all started probably at a Long John Silver's. We'll talk about that, the new album, King's Mouth, the band's penchant for collaboration, and much more. Welcome to My Turning Point. So for you, what would you say is sort of the turning point moment that led you to be whether Wayne Coyne of the Flaming Lips or just Wayne Coyne, the person you are today? Well, you know, I think, I, th- I mean, for me, I think as you get older, there's, there's, there's always new turning points. You know, there's always things that you think, well, um, I, used to, I used to look at it this way, now I look at it that way. But for sure, you know, early on, when probably this time when I'm, do you guys, do you know what the Long John Silver's fast food restaurant is? Do you know what that is? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I forget that people don't know that this is a fried, you know, they're, they're, they're doing this English version of fried fish and french fries, and it's called fish and chips at Long John Silver's. And back in the day, I was a fry cook there. I meant you're cooking like fried fish and fried shrimp and french fries and hush puppies. And I... I love this job. I mean, I, I started there when I was 16. My One of my older brothers worked there, and he, he got me the gig, and I was very glad to have this, this, uh, this job working fast food. Virtually everybody that I knew in Oklahoma City at the time, this is, in, this is 1977 when I'm 16 years old. And um, I was glad to have a job, you know, and I think this initially this job was just a very low impact sort of couple of days a week and it gave me enough money to afford to have an apartment and sort of start to live my own life even though I had a great great family bunch of my older brothers and sister and friends and I love my parents and all that for some reason I I'm uh, already have my own apartment when I'm 16 17 years old um I don't know why. I never think about it now. It's like why? Why would I've done that? But anyway, I was working at this Long John Silver's uh, fast food restaurant, which I ended up working at for ten or eleven years. You know, quite a while. You know, um, and I think I'm just seventeen or eighteen years old. I can't quite remember. There's just not a lot of you know information that I can go back and check on exactly when it was. But I think I'm seventeen years old, and this. Long John Silver's gets robbed, you know, after right as we're about to close, these three guys come in and they have very big, we're assuming loaded pistols and they're screaming and they're, man, they are just very intensely, you know, doing this robbery and they make us lay on the ground and you, you get this feeling that you are going to get your head blown off and, and you know, that this is the end of your life. I mean, I, I, I guess up until then, I'd never, 
uh, this sounds weird to say, but I don't think I'd ever considered that I was alive. You know, you're you're just alive, and you're you you know you're like a you're like a tree or a worm. There's just you're just alive. You know, in this this time where I laid on the floor in the in the back in the back you know prep area of of Long John Silver's there. You know, it really did occur to me like, oh my God, someone's going to be calling. You know, the police are going to go by my mother's house and tell her what happened and my brothers. And, you know, it, it really it went through my mind. This is what's going to happen because I'm going to, you know, this is my last moments alive, you know. And, you know, the robbery seemed to take forever, but it was only probably a, you know, a minute or two. And then the robbers scurried outside and we sort of all, you know, kind of cautiously looked up like is this over what happened you know still fearing that they're going to run back in and shoot us or something you know and um you know we we assumed that it was over we went and locked the doors and we all jumped for joy and we all cried i mean I, there was just the three of us there as an assistant manager another cashier woman that was working with us and, and i was the cook and we just cried like like i couldn't believe like oh my god we we survived this thing and i think this this little brief glimpse into like, look, this is, this is real life. You know, this is, this is the real deal. And this is what you have to lose. I think it made me realize how much petty nonsense things I was hung up on. And for a brief, oh, you know, probably a couple of months, I really did float along like a superhuman, like those little things suddenly did not bother me. And, and the idea that I could pursue, uh, doing music and being an artist and all these things. And I could work at long John Silver's and I could little by little, maybe make my way. But what I think it did, I think it freed me from, I'm from a big family and my, my father was a, you know, he's a great, great, you know, alpha male worker dad and, and all of my brothers and myself included at times, uh, worked for him. And some of my older brothers simply just, you know, did what he did as they got older and especially as they got to be like 19 and 20 years old. And I didn't, I didn't really know if I wanted to do that, but I didn't, feel good about it you know i didn't i didn't have a good reason why i didn't want to do that and it's very very big you know subconscious emotional pull to be with my older brothers that i, I and i love them and i love my father and i love that whole idea of being you know in this this loving family and and working together and having all these experiences but i didn't want to do that job but I didn't really know that. And I think this moment after this this second life kind of happened to me, somewhere in there, the guilt and the and the sort of loyalty and all those things that I had, I think I'd built them up to be something that they really weren't. I'd built them up to be so big. It wasn't there for just a little bit. And I think I probably let it be known that I'm going to, I'm going to pursue doing this music and art and, 
and you know, I didn't, I didn't feel like I had to hide that. I didn't have to feel ashamed that I wasn't going to do what my father did and what my brothers did. And funnily enough, you know, as that went along, they all said, "Of course, go do your music. Let's hope it works." And you know, I still worked with them quite a bit you know, trying to make money and trying to make ends meet or whatever. But I think in the back of my mind, this little moment freed me from thinking, you know, why am I pursuing this other thing when this great family is here and this great thing that already exists is here? And I think, you know, so in one in one way, that happened to me when I'm so young, and I don't really know how music or the music business or any of that stuff i really don't have any idea how it how it works you know i'm just looking at it from being a fan of music and probably being 16 and 17 year old and wanting to be a rock star or something like that and just saying i'm going to do that you know and so yeah i mean i'd say if if there's you know one turning point that says this is the beginning of 10,000 other turning points that you'll have to address or whatever, that would probably be the the one that I, I keep going back to. Like, I think I was, strange to say, but I think I was very lucky that I got to lay on the, on the ground there and see what was important. And I think that's, that's the thing I keep always going back to is thinking, well, what's important here, you know, and what, it's because it's hard to know. Well, it's so interesting on so many levels. One, I'm just curious, by the way, what did your dad do? that you decided not to go into? Well, I mean, it was a great sort of man-for-man man sort of job. I mean, he would he would get these big jobs where you'd be installing, you know, like so let's say you're going up to like the fourth floor of an office building, an entire floor that has all these partitions and these desks and these hanging lamps and electrical and all this stuff. Big jobs, you'd be unloading trucks on docks with men that are smoking, you know, and you'd be you'd be doing all this stuff with real labor guys, you know, electricians and plumbers, and we're in there before they lay the carpet. We've got to lay down this this partitioning walls and all this stuff. And my brothers and their friends were all, you know, they're all crazy you know, freaks, hippies, and they're all smoking pot and doing drugs, smoking cigarettes, working, 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 you know, just a very, you know, like a pirate ship, you know, but we had something to do. And it was a way that, you know, everybody could make some money. And I think my father was a great example of just a, you know, very, you know, he, he, he loved us all. And he loved even our friends, but you know, he's, he's tough and he was, you know, demanding, and he he had his way of saying, we got to get this, you know, this job done or whatever, and I think a lot of that, I probably saw no, no, you know, use for that in, I'm going to go and do music, and I wouldn't see where I would have any use for that, but as the years have gone by, and that was a long, long time ago, you know, I'm 58 years old now, so it's a long, long, long time ago, you know, um, I see that that connection to working with other men and finding finding solutions to things and working hard and you know that camaraderie and still the idea of of what it takes to unload trucks i mean being in a band i mean a lot of your your life is dictated by these trucks with all your equipment getting to a certain place getting unloaded you play a show they have to be loaded back all these things that i thought wouldn't apply to a you know, a rock star, little by little, the more I did it, the more I was very glad I had these, these experiences that are rooted in just men 
having to get along, men having to work together, men understanding each other, men having to figure out problems. And I think that's really served me well. And I think it's made our music really, really, you know, relatable in that way. Well, what's so interesting about that, though, too, is, again, I mean, as you and I have talked about over the years, the Flaming Lips have always been so big in the sense of collaboration, maybe more so than a lot of other bands. I mean, now you see the National, for example, are really good about that. But in general, from a band standpoint, uh, a lot of, like, individual members of a band will collaborate. You look at the Foo Fighters, those guys, you know, will play with anybody, you know, things like that. But in general, for a band to work with other musicians is not quite as common. So it's interesting that you say that because I'm sure that developing that sense of community early on probably did play a part in why the lips are so amenable to collaboration. Would you say that that's true? Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you said that. that that's, a great, that's a great insight or maybe a great compliment to my personality. I think part of it is um, that artists are afraid to you know, like the, you're with someone and you just don't know how to confront that you don't want to do this song or this idea or you don't like the way this is going, you know. And I think a lot of that, because of the way we can collaborate now, sort of digitally, you know, you don't really have to face off in a you know in a studio the way like you know Chris Christopherson or Johnny Cash would have had to do, you know, in 1974 or something. You know, you can just kind of send stuff back and forth, you know three or four or, or 10 or 20 times if you want to. And it's not a real confrontation. So I think for the Flaming Lips, I think in, in the times when we really started to kind of accelerate, you know, inviting people to be on some of our, our music and us being a part of their music or whatever, um, I think we were all feeling the same low impact of artistic confrontation because you could just simply send things out and people could, you know, they could do something if they wanted to or not do something if they wanted to. And it wasn't, you weren't face to face with them. So I think in our, that all worked in our favor. And I think having our own studio where we can work and work and work, and it's not so, not so much pressure on you have to do this today or you have to have it done by tomorrow where that helps a lot too. I'm always running into artists that are, as you know, they're busy just like I am. And I always say yes to everything, but yes can mean I might get it done today, but it, I may get it done in six months. So, you know, and I think a lot of people that I run into, I think we're just intuitively understanding that about each other and i think the the ones that you don't get that sort of intuitive understanding of would probably be some that you would say though you love their music maybe it's not such a good idea that we would get together and make music or something like that but um yeah i think it's just a combination probably a combination of us um liking that there is a new energy a new you know something in this music and liking that there's a new personality that we get to play off of and every musician and every artist kind of has their own take on things you know they, they enter a phrase at a certain point and have a certain little way they that they do things and the, remember the the thing that we did with Karen O back in I think it was 2008 I think we did it you know we just we were she did it actually over a, a, a cell phone from a, her hotel room 
And it was exactly the sound that we were looking for anyway. You know, whether she was in the studio or not, we were going to make it sound like it was kind of over a, a telephone or something. And, and all those things, I think, just really played into it. I think she felt really comfortable doing it over the phone as opposed to maybe feeling you know, kind of awkward or something standing in front of us and us listening and judging or whatever. So I think all the technology and all just the different ways of, of, of recording now has allowed most of that to happen. Maybe some of it is our personality and maybe some of it's just a lot of luck. Well, I mean, let's take it on to the current album, King's Mouth. Are there collaborations on there or is this more of a just strictly the lips project? Well, this is like exactly the type of collaboration that I, that I was speaking of. We have Mick Jones, who I think he's mostly known for being in The Clash, but also his own group, the Big Audio Dynamite group. A friend of ours lives next door to one of his bandmates uh, in, in the Big Audio Dynamite. Don Letts is a bandmate with Mick Jones. And we would start to know each other and Don Letts would come to the show and, and our friend Georgia would bring him to the shows and we would be talking backstage and they would they would be reminiscing about stories about the clash and mick jones and i just sort of casually asked them hey you know do you think mick would be interested in doing this sort of voiceover narration of this story of the king's mouth for our record and at the time when i was talking to them about it i think we had about a a third of the album done you know we knew we were working on it we knew we were going to finish it you know sooner or later but it was at a good time that i thought well if he takes you know, a couple of months to do it, it wouldn't really matter. And, but it was a very casual thing. I didn't know him personally, but, but they felt like if they, if they approached him and stayed on it, that he perhaps would do it. And I, I got all the narration that I was hoping for him to read and all that. I got all that together. And about a month later, it all came back already finished, you know, and it really sort of ignited another level of energy for us to finish these songs and sort of put them all together because we had this great narration. Now, I've met Mick Jones a couple of times in person, but I didn't work with him in person at all for this collaboration. So again, this is working in this way where we send him stuff, he's able to go in the studio, he just sends it back to us. And probably that's why he wanted to do it. I mean, I, that's why I say yes to a lot of things, because it's just a very low confrontational thing. You can kind of, you know, approach it in your own in your own frame of mind, your own your own time and all that. You're not people aren't sitting there waiting for you to do your performance or something. So I think I think that's the way that I think most of us are collaborating these days. You know, you kind of say you know, when you get around to it, you know, do some singing on this track or something. And, uh, and then, you know, most of the time, you know, it usually works. I mean, I'm, I'm persistent, you know, and I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm staying on it, but yeah, a lot of times I think people given their own, their own choices or whatever would like saying yes to interesting things. So funny though, cause you say Mick Jones, who I have actually interviewed, but then I got, for a second, I'm like, wait, Mick Jones from The Clash or Mick Jones from Foreigner? So now I have to ask, what would you want Mick Jones from Foreigner to do for the Flaming Lips? Or are you not so much a fan of them? <laughs> well, I mean, I definitely know some of their, you know, their their big songs from, I guess it would be the, the mid-70s or whatever. Um, and he is, isn't he Mark Ronson's? father isn't that the connection there you know um father-in-law I believe. If, if, father-in-law 
Oh, there you go. Yeah, he's some connection, you know. Um, he seems like he's a great, great uh, producer and musician and all that. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, if he came in and said, Wayne, do you want me to do something? I'd say, well, yeah, well, maybe remix a song, see what you would do with it. So, you know, I, I would, if the opportunity presented it, I would, uh, I'd, I'd make the best of it. <laughs> You know, I want to go back to the turning point moment for a second, though. It's an interesting thing because when you look back on things, and, and I talk about this with artists all the time, when you're making a record, you don't necessarily have perspective. It's only later on that you figure it out. I mean, when you look back on a moment like that, it's, as you say, it felt like it was forever, but it only took a moment. It's so funny. Can you think about were there things that you were thinking about lying on that ground, or was it just a complete blank, and only later on did you realize the significance of it? No, I mean, I mean, I, I, I very intensely thought about. I mean, I was, I was going to drive, ride my bicycle, over to my mother's house. My uniform I had been wearing my Long John Silver's uniform for about a week, and it was going to need to be washed. And I was going to drop it off over there, and talk to her for a little bit before I rode my bicycle to my apartment. I and I did that, you know, all the time. I, mean, I saw my brothers, and I saw my uh, my my old one older brother lived right around the corner from there, and I would oftentimes get done with work and stop by his house. We would see each other all the time, even though we didn't live in the same house anymore. We'd see each other every day anyway you know and i didn't think of anything like music or what's going to happen with my life i really just was very sad because I, I i just thought you know not very many of our friends had been had had died and stuff like that by the time i was 16 but a few of them had and i remember getting the news that so and so had been in a car accident, or this person had leukemia over the the summer, and they, you know, and it's just a devastating moment. And but up until this time in our life of our family, and no one close to us had ever died, and and I just, you know, in my mind, I thought, oh, I know how much we all how much you know we all loved each other and how much it meant to, to, for us all to be there with each other and i just really thought i'm gonna die here and I, i'm just trying to think oh my god they have to tell my mother and they have to tell my my brothers and you know it really was all that it really was i felt as though i let them down and i, I couldn't see the situation coming and here i was i was i like this happened to me and i'm you know, I wish I could have said I was sorry. I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't have got out of it or whatever. You know, and that really was it. You know, I didn't have any. It wasn't about oh, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I don't know why. You know, I think it was just like oh my god, I wish I could tell them what's going on here. You know, and I think as soon as I was able, you know, once it was over with, and I didn't, you know, get get. Killed. I think that stayed with me, you know, and I and I wanted to tell them everything that was going on in my life, and I think that sort of made me a little bit braver, you know. Like I said, it wasn't that; it didn't make me smarter and didn't make me more experienced. It just made me think this is important. It's important to me, and I wouldn't say the things that are important to me or have to be important to everybody, but those things were important to me, and I think that that's the thing the little turning point for me that let it say well, i can i want to do my music it's important to me it doesn't have to be important to my father or my brothers and the more i talked about it the more it was important to them that i was like you should do your thing it's great you know and they always always and still do you know they always 
thought for me to say, hey, do your thing, you know, don't don't listen to those people. They're stupid. Do your thing is cool. Do it, you know. And it's still like, it's still like that today. My, my father's not here. My mother's not here, you know, but my older brothers and their friends and all that are still very much like, yeah, do your thing, you know. And I think it's because we got to share these this stuff, you know, and I and for me it it, it did become important that I I tell them what's going on. I tell them what I think. I tell them what I'm, you know, what I want to do. And and I I so I think if anything else it it's that, you know, it gives you a sense of well, there's lots of choices to make. There's lots of things that are cool, but you have to kind of sometimes distill it down to what what really is important. And I think that sense of, you know, family and I think part of that is, you know, it's, it's probably so deep in me that I probably had to have a little bit of adrenaline and a little bit of fear to get to that you know it's very easy to be very comfortable and think oh this is what life is you know life is fun and life is full of happiness and health and all that and i think sometimes you do need a shot of adrenaline and being scared and all that to to go down to that inner core that is about you know that deep deep love and that that deep deep sense of family and all that sort of stuff it's it's easy to be distracted from that well, it's interesting. Did you find then as well that what that did, and, and this, of course, will play, play, I can't talk, uh, which is not good for a podcast, but whatever, um, will play into the songwriting as well. And because what happens is you learn from an experience like that to speak up, to not keep your feelings bottled up, to say what it is you want to say. And maybe, especially as a guy, sometimes you feel like, I don't want to say this, or it's weird, or it's awkward, or whatever. But having gone through that experience and having specifically wanted to talk with your parents about, you know, the things that you were feeling or specifically your mom. And then later on as a songwriter, do you feel like it opened you up to be like, okay, if I want to say something, I'm not going to be hesitant to say it or I'm not going to worry about what other people think. I'm just going to put it out there and, you know, fuck them if they don't like it. Well, I think you're exactly right. I mean, you know, we always hope that the things you say are out of out of love and because you care and stuff like that. But, you know, my family was very much the stoic, manly men. You know, they didn't they didn't talk about their feelings. I don't think my father said I love you that much in his life to anybody. You know, we we knew he loved us. And and sometimes I think that's more important that people show you that they love you than even say it, you know. But I after this incident, I, I did feel a little bit less I think you said it, you know, a little bit less embarrassed about it because you do, you don't, you know, you're, it's, it's an awkward thing if you're, if you're come from a family that's not used to that sort of thing. But I think you're right. I think I did realize that saying those things in a song and saying those things within lyrics, you know, you can, you can almost pretend to be a character. And even though this character is like a made up character, it does allow you to be you know, brutally, brutally honest with the way you feel about things because you're kind of shielded by being a character in a song or something like that. And I think that's really, uh, you know, that's how a lot of a lot of people get around it because it is kind of an awkward thing if you're not if you're not that that type of personality in your life, you know. But I think as my life has gone on, you know, I mean, most of my life now. It was been in the flaming lips since I was 21 years old. So most of my life now has kind of been about, you know, playing music and writing songs and and then even doing this 
thing like I'm doing with you, where you talk about you talk about music and writing songs in your life and stuff like that. So I think I've been very lucky that it that that little moment let me start to get ready, start to get used to, and start to embrace the idea that. Yeah, talk about what's going on with you. And you can always be wrong. It doesn't, you know, I, I think so many people don't want to say anything for fear that they're going to look like an idiot. And, you know, I would say, I'd be the first one to say, yeah, I, I'm an idiot. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if what I'm saying is right or wrong, but just the way I feel. And I think in, in music and in songs, I think that's very allowable. You know, I think, I, I think people want to know that this is the way you feel doesn't mean that you're right doesn't mean that you're wrong doesn't mean that I have to feel that think that way or whatever but to, to but to get across the way you feel is probably already a great great you know it's empowering someone else to do the same thing uh, that's happened to me a lot where I'm like well he's saying these things why can't I or she's saying those things in a song why can't I do the same thing and you know it's just it's just people sort of encouraging you to say I, I you know I did it you can do it so I'm curious, what are two or three of the songs for you that you feel like, you know, inspired you to do that, that, that you look back on and when you heard them allowed you to say, okay, this is what it is I want to talk about? Well, I mean, even a song, I mean, we, we, we play the song after our shows uh, virtually every night, a song even by Louis Armstrong uh, called, you know, I think to myself, what a wonderful world. You know, these are and even the very beginning of that is a very hokey thing to say. You know, I, I see trees of green, you know, red roses too. You know, I see them bloom for me and you. And, you know, it's just they're hokey things to say if you're, if you're trying to be a, a man, you know, speaking to another man. But they're, they're, they're obvious, beautiful, wonderful things or even a song like um i don't know even a song as simple as like say happy birthday to you i mean it's a, it's a, such a silly nonsensical song but it is such an optimistic giving song it's just these simple words happy birthday to you happy birthday to you <laughs> you know what i mean it's you know there these are songs i wish i'd written you know they're so perfectly they so perfectly work you know they're so useful to people and so even even those sorts of things, saying, well, those, I want my songs to be like that. I wish my songs communicated something like that. So then, last question, what are those couple songs for you? Because again, every songwriter wants to do their best work, but of course you hit upon moments that are special, moments that you feel like you've hit something. So for you, when you look back at your work, or even on King's Mouth, those one or two songs where you feel like, okay, this is really what it is that I wanted to say, and I was able to get it in that way that, that I feel like you know, this is something that I'm very proud of saying it in this way. Well, I mean, I think the the audience and everybody that you know knows the Flaming Lips would would probably pick the song "Do You Realize," which even when I hear it now, you know, I think, oh my God, you know, that's who wrote that song? That's really that really works, you know. I think it's the sort of thing that you write without really b being aware of how it's working you know and i think if i would have contemplated it too much i, I probably would have not sang it and thought of it in that same way you know but luckily it was a track that we were doing in between you know quite a few other tracks and it seemed to be working and everybody seemed to like it and so we just moved on but i wouldn't i would never have thought it has this extra extra power to it that that i believe it does so i, I would say it's just something that 
you know, we were very lucky, kind of happened to us. Don't get me wrong, we were working hard and we wanted, we were trying to make things work and all that, but there's just a, that, that line that says, you know, everyone you know someday will die. That ends, you know, the, the three or four phrases there, and it ends with a line like that, and it's something that I'm sure I would, would have tried, to, if I knew I was trying to say something that seemed so simple and so important and so something everybody already knew i wouldn't have ever sang it it was just a it was just a line that rhymed with you know a couple of the previous lines but i think that's how it works you know you just kind of have to be open to it and say well you know i didn't i didn't think that but i sang it and maybe singing it is more you than that part of your brain that thinks it and you just have to accept that and accept that for the good and the bad and what's crazy is how that ties into your turning point. And I wonder if you hadn't had that experience at Long John Silver's, if you would have had that phrasing or that exact thought of dying. Well, I, I know. See, that's why, I mean, these even though these things, we speak about them as turning points, you know, they really are always with you. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not back there. It really is part of this thing. It's always, always growing. You're always adding to it. It's always important. So I think you're right. Hey, this has been Steve Balton, or I guess this is still Steve Balton. This has been my turning point with special guest Wayne Coyne from The Flaming Lips. As always, fascinating, intriguing, entertaining. One of the coolest interviews in music. Thanks so much to Wayne for being here on My Turning Point, and hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks. to LASIK, Dr. Boutros and the Eye Center have led the way for the past 25 years. Today, this tradition continues by being one of the few practices in the country to offer you Eye Design 2.0, using the same technology as the NASA James Webb Telescope. And in the hands of an elite surgeon like Dr. Boutros, more patients are seeing 2020 or better after LASIK. Right now, enjoy 20% off Eye LASIK with Eye Design. Go to theeyecenter.com or call 888-844-2020. Some restrictions apply. If you look around, there are so many ways to make a difference. At Capella University, our FlexPath format gives you a different way to earn your degree. Take courses at your speed. Move on whenever you're ready. Education should fit your life. Learn more at capella.edu. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 